Well, this morning, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 9, uh, specifically verses 35 through 38. There's a couple of different passages in the Bible that have similar language. Luke 10 and John 4 are kind of parallel passages for this, but we're going to be concentrating on Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. Um, You know, as I was driving around this week, the thought occurred to me, you know, it's springtime here in the county, and that means that if you've been out for a drive recently, you have undoubtedly found yourself pulled in as an unwitting participant in what I've heard called an Aristic County parade. You're zipping along, windows down, radio up, and then you come over a hill or around a bend, and suddenly you find yourself slowing way, way down behind a lumbering piece of farm equipment. I know you've all had this experience. I drove, I was driving along the other day, and I came upon some piece of equipment. I don't even know what it was for. But it had its wheels way off on the shoulder, and it was still out into the other lane, good good ways across. I was like, man, that is an amazingly big piece of equipment. It's an Aristic County parade. We're all going slowly, you know. (laughs) Nobody's there to watch, but we're doing the parade. But it's kind of funny, not like ha-ha funny, but more like ironic funny, that all this machinery, which is designed to make something go much, much faster, makes us all slow down so much. However, I imagine that anyone who has ever had to prepare a field for planting with a team of mules, or whoever had to pick a potato field by hand, would not begrudge the machinery the few minutes it held them back because each piece of machinery represents a net time savings of untold hours of backbreaking labor. It is one of the great God-given strengths of humanity that we are so ingenious at inventing labor-saving devices. From the invention of the wheel to the potato harvester to the smartphone, Humans have invented incredible machines that help us accomplish all kinds of tasks with less sweat, less expense, less help, less waste, and of course, in less time. Now, I point this out because it has some bearing on our text for this morning, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. It says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And that statement is enormously important for us during this month-long conversation that we are having as a church about love and action, missions. Interestingly, for the past century or more, Americans have led the way in addressing the very problem that Jesus mentions here in Matthew 9. This is why all of our roads are choked with Aristic County parades every May. We live in a land of amber waves of grain, fruited plains, but it's also a land of spacious skies and purple mountains majesty, immense solitudes, 
Our, the interior of our country is not enormously well populated. And so historically, over the course of our nation's history, we have had an abundance of crops and a sh- chronic shortage of labor. The answer of American farmers and agricultural engineers to the abundant harvest but too few laborers has long been to mechanize and automate. In other words, instead of trying to figure out how to get more laborers into the fields, Americans have invented ways of harvesting with fewer and fewer laborers. Can this be the strategy of the church? Can we network technology like television, radio, Facebook, the internet? Can these things be harnessed to bring in a harvest with fewer and fewer people? In light of the abundant harvest and Jesus' observation, recognize and automate our way to fulfilling the Great Commission. Can we get it done with less people participating? I can just imagine an American farmer standing there when Jesus said what he did about an abundant harvest and too few laborers. I hear you, Jesus. It's the same problem we got back at my place. What you need is a combine harvester with GPS and hill-leveling technology. However, Jesus is Almighty God, and he's omniscient besides, and he knew about technological advances when he made this timeless statement. And he does not say that the task of his disciples were were to invent ways to bring in a great harvest with fewer and fewer people. Or anything like that. Let's all pay close, careful attention to what Jesus did command. His command was to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more laborers into his harvest. Guys, there is hardly a more head-scratching, mystifying statement in all the Bible than this. We know that finding a labor-saving way of doing kingdom work is not really God's plan, not only because that's not what he said, and he means what he says, but, and this is a really important thing to note, God himself is the greatest labor-saving thing that ever was. Do you recall the way that the Bible explains how all that is first came into being? We are told that God spoke and it appeared. There is no greater demonstration of time-saving power that one can imagine than that the world is spoken into existence in a moment. Just think of the labor-saving implications of that kind of power. If a thing can be accomplished simply by willing it, there are no limiting factors. Who needs laborers? If at a word, all that needs to be done can be accomplished. Let me ask you this, and it's a serious question. 
what would you make happen today if it could be accomplished simply by speaking it? What would you make sure happened before this day ended if you could speak the word and it came into existence? Most of us will not have a ready answer for that question because it is so outlandishly far from anything we've ever experienced that honestly we've never even really entertained it. Not even in our wildest imaginings have we conceived of a world where we could speak beautiful things into existence. Just imagine amazing, wonderful things coming to be at a word from you. Now, with that in mind, consider the following passages. Jesus speaking here, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Matthew 21, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. These are words from our Lord that we frankly have a hard time taking at face value. But I believe that even more than wanting to be a blessing to the world and to the nations, God wants to bless this world in response to the prayers of his people. Don't get it turned around and don't get me confused with other kinds of preachers. I'm not suggesting that Jesus is a Santa Claus figure. And if you would just ask him for health and wealth, he'll give it to you. I'm not saying that in the least. But I am saying that if we ask a thing in his name, that is, in the spirit and the knowledge of who God is and what his will is, he's going to do it, he says. I don't think he's blowing smoke. The God who spoke and beautiful, amazing things came into existence and flourished has handed that kind of power to his people, the church, and has said, now you do it. (laughs) Fellow Christians, do these verses give you a sense of who you are? Do you know what awesome creative power and potential has been put at your disposal through prayer? Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So yes, God can do it all by himself. He needs us not at all. He's omnipotent, almighty, and altogether equal to the task, but his desire is that there would be more laborers. And another interesting thing about this passage is that God speaks this command to his disciples, to those few laborers that do exist. Now, anybody who's given the Gospels a fair reading would have to say that these disciples are wildly imperfect as far as laborers go, but aren't we all? (laughs) They are shot through with bad ideas, misunderstandings, 
But they're sincere. They're trying. And along the way, God is correcting them, perfecting them, helping them see things more clearly. Guys, that's you and me. That's you and me. In every church, you will find that there is a relatively small group of people who do a larger than proportionate share of the work of the church. And the rest of the church are not opposed to the work they're doing, but their role is really more to fund it and to cheer them on than to participate in it personally. At least that's how they seem to view it. And I actually think, guys, this is one of State Road's strengths. As a a church, I would say we have a higher percentage of the church engaged meaningfully in some kind of service or ministry than is average. At least just speaking anecdotally, that's my Um, that's been my experience among you, State Road, is that so many of you are serving and laboring. It's wonderful to serve here among you. But even so, in most churches, the percentage of the people who do the work of the kingdom and those who cheer them on can be pretty discouraging. So please note that when Jesus makes this observation, he notes the fact that there are too few laborers His invitation to those laborers is not to somehow compensate or to somehow be more godlike in their capacity to accomplish things, but rather to join God in desiring for more laborers to take to the field. More often than not, the response of the few laborers is to do more. But Jesus commands that the few pray for more laborers rather than doing more. In 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed into existence the Homestead Act, which said that if you went out and you took possession of a claim out west somewhere, you could come into legal possession forever and always, you and your descendants of 160 acres. You just had to go there live on it for a period of time, improve the land, and that 160 acres was yours. At that time, in 1862, the population of the United States was equal to today's population of just Texas. Enormous tracts of land, unfarmed, I won't say unpopulated, because, of course, we know the historical reality of what our country did to native peoples living there as well. But all that aside, why didn't Abraham Lincoln say 160 square miles? There were enough people to make that real. Why 160 acres? Why stop at that place? (laughs) Why not 200? Why not 300 acres? The nation could easily have absorbed that. They could have passed that along. Well, the reality is because there's only so much a human person can farm in a year. At that time, given the technology and what was available to them, it was really beyond the capacity of a single family, especially living out west where they didn't have access to a community of day laborers, to farm more than 160 acres would have been beyond what they could reasonably do. And human beings, you're finite. (laughs) If If you encounter as a servant... And many of you are. I know this to be true of so many of you. You are a laborer for the kingdom. You're doing wonderful things. And you hear Jesus say, the fields are white under the harvest, but the laborers are few. And you think, I need to do more. That is not what Jesus commands in the next breath. 
It's not. He is not saying you need to somehow double your production. (laughs) He's not the manager at the factory saying, what's wrong with you people? He is saying, guys, join me in praying. Pray to me, the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more laborers into that harvest. You can only farm 160 acres, people. You can't do more than that. God knows it. And even if you could do 160 square miles, the harvest would still be abundantly plentiful beyond your abilities to bring it all in. Why more laborers, though? Again, going back to that question, God can just bring it in like that. I would answer because God is concerned about the joy of his people. Uh, I, I have, over the course of my life, encountered way more pet dogs than working dogs. But those times I have met a working dog, they're way more happy than a dog that has spent its life just waiting for mealtime. Have you ever noticed this? I one time got to know a Labrador retriever that was actively used not only for duck fishing, but also as a, uh, like a sniffing dog for explosives, I think what it was, and went regularly about its work. It had busy days. That dog was sleek. It was happy. It was filled with a, a joy that, at the same time, I knew somebody who had a Labrador retriever that was overweight. It was uh, not right in its head. <laughs> it was neurotic about weird things. I'm telling you, joy is to be found in living out of your design. What were you made to do? And am I living more like a pampered chihuahua? Or am I a working dog? Do I jump down out of the pickup truck filled with joy and vim and vigor, ready to tackle whatever my master has called me to do that day? Or am I just sitting around waiting for the dinner bell? Different spirit in those two kinds of animals. When Jesus points out that there are too few laborers, there exist only two possibilities for why this is a problem from Jesus' perspective. He either wants something from his people or he wants something for them. Which is it? Does Jesus want something from you today or is he desiring something for you? Let's keep in mind who he is. What need does God have? What can you bring him that then he would receive it and say, oh, now I am complete? What do you have to give him? This command does not exist because he has a need. That's not it. He is not concerned about the too few laborers because he wants something from his church. He is concerned about the too few laborers because he wants something for you, his people. He's not concerned primarily with getting the harvest in so much as he is concerned that his people be invested in the harvest. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you, which is to say that we have been sent with the same mission the same heart, the same message. But have we gone? The Homestead Act says you can go out 
west and lay claim to your 160 acres, but are we still sitting in Boston somewhere? Dreaming about the wilds of the West, cheering people on who go, but not going personally. The fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. Make no mistake, God will not be hindered in effecting the full harvest if we, his laborers, do not take to the field. He will not be stopped. This harvest is coming in, in its fullness. The question before every Jesus follower this morning is not whether the crop will be brought in, but whether you will be cheerfully present in the midst of the bringing in. Make no mistake, if State Road Advent Christian Church says no to the Lord of the harvest, we would be denying him not a thing. We would be denying ourselves a great deal. Among those things we'd be denying ourselves is a future as a church, and as well as the joy and excitement that comes from going with him out into the harvest. Again, and I say this a lot, God is not needy or pathetic. He is not standing there hat in hand hoping that people go out and bring in this harvest. People will go out, will it be us? That's the question. If we say no, he will raise up another church. If I say no, he will raise up another believer. We need to believe that God's commands are for our joy. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When he says the, 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 the abundance of the harvest, but there's too few laborers, he is not saying, I'm going to burden you now with the task of bringing in an immense thing. He's saying, find your joy and your rest in being a cheerful laborer. Believe me that the path towards that is found in a cheerful, obedient response. And of course, he does not ask us to pray to the Lord of the harvest because the Lord of the harvest is ignorant of the labor shortage or somehow unmoved. Remember, Jesus begins by saying in this very passage, he looks out on humanity and filled with compassion, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, they're harassed and helpless. The Lord of the harvest heart is already there. He knows the great need. He knows the lack of laborers. But his command is, speak back to me my heart, which is equivalent of saying, share my heart. Prayer does not exist to move God. It exists to move us into agreement with his will. And so part and parcel of this command to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more laborers into the harvest, part and parcel of that is to share his concern for your fellow believers who are inactive in their faith, and to share the Father's heart for the lost, to bring them in. Share my heart here is really part of this. Prayer is what moves human beings, not the other way around. The great aim of God's activity in all of our lives is to make us more like Jesus. You are not a means to some other end. And your personal transformation into a cheerful laborer who shares his heart for the lost and who, is moved pers- and who is moved personally to action in the presence of a great abundant harvest is his aim for your life. He does not look upon you as a tool to be used to gain someone else that he values more than you. 
Your evolution into a laborer is the desired thing. But if we say no, he is a respecter of decisions, and the harvest will go on. That, that thought of the harvest going on without me fills me with a horrible dread. I'd be missing out. I think Jonah is a really great example of this. We preached recently, I won't belabor the point, but I preached recently through the story of Jonah. And that whole story, which has as a, almost a background plot element, is the lost masses in the city of Nineveh. They're mentioned very little, actually, but they are, remember, God commands his prophet Jonah to go to them. He hates them. He refuses to go. And then the whole story of Jonah is about God's pursuit of this AWOL laborer from the field. When he says here, the fields are abundantly full of a harvest, but the laborers are few, and you're thinking to yourself this morning, I really have not done much in the harvest. I want you to know that is, I think, very similar to the spirit with which God was speaking to Jonah. Go with my message, my heart, do what's been commanded. Jonah, even when he went, God still took issue with his heart in the going. It's, one of the, it's a fascinating book. But we've already done that, so we'll move on. However, it's not that God is absent from the harvest. He's not. All of that enormous world-creating power that we see in Genesis is available to his laborers who are invested in this work, but for reasons that are mysterious, maybe even unknowable, he has chosen to exercise that power in response to the prayers of his people. Again, do you know who you are? So I'll say it again. Imagine being able to speak and amazing things happen. At a word from you, something flourishes. Jesus is saying, when he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more laborers into the, his harvest. It's basically like, a challenge. Try me. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Ah, that's a convicting thought. Have I ever prayed this prayer that Jesus explicitly commands me to pray? What is the church? It's among other things a mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. Nothing miraculous is being asked of you in this command. Jesus is addressing normal men, feeble, frail, made of dust like you and me, nothing unusual about them. He's saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more laborers into his harvest. That, those words of our Lord are echoing in this room now with the same urgency in the same command. The one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, it is his power that is at work within us and among us today, right now, here. Jesus famously said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And implied in that statement is the wonderful truth that in him the do-nothing is reversed. With man, all kinds of things are impossible 
but he can do all things. A wheat farmer from the breadbasket might have expected Jesus' command that follows this observation to be, we need to get all hands on deck. We need to invest in some machinery to compensate for the lack of manpower. However, Jesus' command is to pray earnestly that more laborers would be sent out. The laborers are the point. Have you ever prayed this prayer? There is a sense as you read the Gospels that Jesus saw a lot of things that others did not. He just saw a lot of hidden things. Hidden motives, hidden needs, hidden sin, hidden righteousness. He saw a hidden future. He saw the hidden strategies of the enemy as they tried vainly to change that future. So many of Jesus' interactions with humanity, as recorded in the Gospels, portray a clear-eyed Jesus addressing souls that were utterly blinded to the spiritual realities that surrounded them. And on this occasion, like a person describing a scene to somebody who is blind, Jesus says, it says in Luke 10 too, the fields are white unto the harvest. The disciples saw no harvest, but Jesus did. And the question that presses in on me this morning, maybe you too, is what do I see when I drive through town? <laughs> when, I, when I drive down Main Street in Presque Isle, and I see all the people, do I believe that there is an abundant harvest? Do I believe it? Do I see wheat or do I see weeds? Weeds, weeds everywhere. Do I privately doubt the abundance of this harvest? Do I privately doubt that if God's people really stuck their neck out and opened their mouths and described with words their hope, the basis of their hope in the gospel, would anybody respond or would I be left hanging awkwardly in the breeze with Jesus on my lips? Jesus is seeing something around us that we're blind to. Right now, here in Aroostook County, in the communities where we live, there are people who are being drawn to God in a way that is mysterious and invisible to us. And Jesus' words, as he looks out, is the fields are white under the harvest, but the laborers are few. And I think one of the reasons why laborers are sometimes so few is because we doubt or disbelieve the first statement. If I say anything... It will have no effect. People are too hardened in their sin, too hardened in their opinions. I don't believe the fields are white under the harvest in the town where I live. People are hardened weeds, not potential wheat. (laughs) I won't speak. I won't go out into the harvest because I see none. So Jesus begins by saying there is a harvest to be brought in. And laborers are few. Now, in order to be an active laborer, you have to believe the first statement. Nobody comes to Jesus except the Father draws them. Nobody. (laughs) Nobody is born again except as a miracle baby, born of a miracle, miraculous drawing. You have to believe that God is on the move if you are going to get up and move with him. 
Not only did Jesus see much that his disciples did not see, but he also understood quite often what was seen differently than them. I think very tellingly, this is one little microcosm interaction that we see in the scriptures is when Jesus is walking with his disciples outside of the temple, they see the man who was born blind. The disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, no, 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 you got that all wrong. It was not that he sinned or his parents sinned, but that God's glory might be displayed in him. He just sees people differently than you and I do. Jesus said, walk by faith, not by sight. So he starts by saying, the fields are white under the harvest. Now move in faith with belief in what I've said to speak up. We say, oh, but Jesus, no, no, you don't know the people in my life. They would not. They would have no effect. That is walking by sight, not by faith. In the same passages where Jesus proclaimed the existence of an abundant but as yet unharvested crop, we're told that Jesus looked on the masses of humanity and he felt compassion for them, saying they were harassed and helpless. Instead of looking on them as weeds to be pulled and cast away, he saw in them a desirable thing to be harvested and gathered in. And the question I was asked to myself, or maybe the Holy Spirit drew me to self-confront with, was what do I see in the faces of my neighbors? A person to be gathered in, or you stay on your side of the fence? (laughs) Which is true for me. And here's the truth about prayer. Let's close with this thought. Prayer does not exist to move God, but to move us. God does not need us to pray. It is we who need to pray. God God does not need laborers. Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus does not need laborers. It is we who need to become laborers. And when Jesus says this about the abundant crop and too few laborers, it is really a challenge to every Christian with ears to hear it. Am I going to invest myself in the great central cause of the whole world? Or like a Labrador retriever that has somehow become a lap dog, am I going to lay obese and groaning on the kitchen floor waiting for dinner? this This is what's in front of us. If we say no to God, we deny Him nothing. But we lose out on all the joy that comes from responding obediently. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't see it. God, I do not see the abundant harvest that Jesus proclaims. God, I see people who are hardened in their sin and in their opinions. I see the impossibility of having anything approaching a reasonable conversation about something as weighty as whether or not you exist. Father, I live among a fractured and polarized people who do not seem capable of agreeing on anything. And Father, I question in the privacy of my heart the veracity of Jesus' statement that there is an abundant harvest to be had. Forgive me my disbelief. Father, 
having confessed my disbelief, Father, I pray that you would create in me a belief in those statements, in that statement of Jesus. Father, help me to walk by faith in what Jesus has said and not in the sight of my own carnal eyes. Father, the laborers are few. And God, we know that you do not need laborers. It's we who need to become laborers. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would, for our joy, continue to pursue us along these lines. Father, thank you for the way you shepherd us, not allowing us to wander off towards destruction or to wasted lives. Father, thank you for the way you have pursued us this morning in your word. And Father, we ask you, Lord, to continue pursuing us as we go out from this place and into the harvest. Father, pray, Lord, that in the moment when you make us aware that we are in the presence of someone that you are drawing to yourself, they have been awakened to a mysterious growing interest in you. They feel drawn and attracted to Jesus. Father, your plan for reaching those people is your church, and there is no plan B. We can either be that church or fade into irrelevance. So, Father, when that moment comes, I would ask this for me and my brothers and sisters here in this room. Father, that you would fill us with courage, that you would bring words into our mouths that maybe even surprise us. Father, I pray that you would draw us into times of prayer this week and that we would share your heart by asking you to send out more laborers into the harvest. Father, I thank you for the small but committed group of people who meet in my office on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and pray this very prayer week after week after week. Father, we're seeing you answer it in wonderful ways, but we long to see more of it. Father, move us this week to pray this prayer more and more and more. God, we know you're the Lord of the harvest, and we plead with you to send out more laborers into your harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.